was out to dinner with some girlfriends and it was when deconstructed desserts were very popular. Thankfully, they seem to have moved away. But this sticky date pudding came and it was revolting because, you know, you had a bit of dry cake in one corner and a smatter of caramel in the other. How does this relate to behavioural economics? Well, behavioural economics to me was like a deconstructed sticky date pudding. There were ingredients everywhere, but nothing was codifying it. Hi guys, and welcome to another load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. In fact, the last one before I take a BS break in August and recharge the batteries. But don't panic, there is plenty more to come. To sign us off is the sharp, thoughtful and most engaging Bree Williams. Bree is one of the foremost behavioural scientists in Australia. She is obsessed with application rather than theory, and I buy that approach 100%. She majored in accounting and psychology at university, a rare but actually quite sensible combination actually, and then built a corporate career in product design and marketing before the BS switch was flicked in 2008 when she read Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational, a book that would change her life. It crystallised why she'd been this, experiencing rather this nagging irritation throughout her 15-year corporate career, and it started to address questions like why people get frustrated with their colleagues, why campaigns fail, and why products flop. She realised we'd been doing it wrong. Our assumptions about why and how to influence behaviour had been wrong. That book inspired Bree to start People Patterns, one of Australia's first consultancies to apply behavioural economics to everyday business and personal effectiveness, to write books on the topic and to work with businesses to make their lives easier. Today with Bree, we're talking about her background, her influences, problems she loves solving, how do I use BS to get the most out of my guests, and being chased by elephants in Botswana. Bree, not me that is. Enjoy it all. Bree, welcome to a load of BS. Good afternoon to you in Melbourne, which is I think where you are, and it's wonderful to have you here. So good to be with you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. My great pleasure. Now, when I see you in action as a behavioural scientist, Bree, you have a very playful, theatrical presentation style. You often use fun props and visuals to communicate your messages. And it seems to me that you're trying to do something a little different from other BS commentators and consultants. And I wonder, is that a style that you've deliberately cultivated or does that just come very naturally to you? Gee, that's neat. Uh, thank you for asking that question. I haven't been asked that before. It serves a couple of purposes. First and foremost, it's engagement of the audience. And so I'm very keen that there's a mnemonic, you know, some device that means that whatever content I'm sharing with them might stick. So often I wear funny hats, for instance, so that people will have another um, visual touch point to match the message with the memory. But it has been a pattern throughout my career before I was in behavioural science, and I think it really stems from being quite shy and being introverted. So really, it's a way of me shifting attention from me to whatever my prop happens to be. And I always think of um, more recently, Susan Kane, or recently, it's probably 10 years ago, with her amazing TED Talk that accompanied her book, Quiet. And she started that presentation with a giant suitcase she brought to stage, and she talked about that being a prop that she used. And I thought that was brilliant. So I think the more presenters can use visual devices in different dimensions, in other words, not just slides, but using other three-dimensional devices, it can really help an audience. I mean, you do actually chide yourself in a number of your videos by saying, look, you know, of course, one of the foundational principles of behavioral science is that information in of itself does not or rarely changes behavior. But yet here you are sort of throwing information <laughs> just to try and tell us something. So perhaps using other prompts or aids is a means just to distract our attention and keep us focused on, on what you're actually hoping that we do to actually get us to yeah. do what you want us to do. Very right, Daniel. So we'll use using multiple levers, I suppose. So I'm looking for different ways to get the message across because you're quite right. Information isn't enough on its own. And I know you've been tweeting about that also, but 
So it's incumbent on us as people trying to share information that we try and embed it in some way. And increasingly what I'm trying to do with my audience, for instance, is actually getting them to more physically embed it. So using their hand and writing on their hand, because I know when they go back to their workplace, guess what? Their hand is going to be with them. And I want that to be their memory aid. So when they're sitting in a meeting thinking, oh, what was it that Bree was sharing with us? They can look at their hand and that will be their cue. Yeah, because actually, I think philosophically, what you're doing in your business has some parallel with what I'm trying to get across in this podcast, which is about real life application, which is about translating the academic laboratory environment into the messy real world. And I think you know everything or much of what you do, if not everything you do is geared towards some kind of real life application. As I wonder, do you think there's this gap between call it the sugar rush popular BS literature full of its curious and entertaining experiments and the actual application of BS in the messy real world. That is one of the significant challenges of behavioural science. And I recently blogged on this, but one of my reflections, for instance, on Cialdini's work around influence, because famously there was that study of the, um, you know, hotel towels. And if you put a social norm, people are more encouraged to reuse and recycle their towels. And yet every hotel I go into, well, I should say no hotel I go into, carries that message. And so my reflection is this master of influence hasn't been able to influence the hotel industry to take on this lesson from behavioral science. So that fascinates me because I think the more meta behavioral scientists can be, the more it's going to get traction. And by that, I mean, for instance, and why I kicked off my Talking Talks presentation skills interview series was I was watching behavioral scientists present on behavioral science in things like Nudgedoc and other sort of conferences. And these very clever behavioural scientists weren't using the tenets of behavioural science in their presentation in order to get traction for their ideas. And so actually, I do have a question for you, Daniel. Talk me through how you use behavioural science in your podcast. Well, that is an interesting question. I suppose I'm trying to get under the skin a little of my guests and trying to do a bit more sort of storytelling, if you like, rather than just ask sort of conventional chronological questions about their history and background. So I'm trying to sort of understand motivation and influence and ambition and aspiration, because typically most of the guests that I talk to um, have done a lot of interviews before. So if you want to find out about Bree Williams and her full story, you can kind of do that. And that's not to say that one ignores that. But I'm trying to, I think, do what good behavioral science does, which is take a slightly sort of less obvious non-linear approach and sort of circumnavigate the obvious and try and look at the oblique or the less obvious angle in terms of how I kind of build the story and the narrative and the dialogue. Tell me, why do you use classical music? And was that the deliberate choice? Ah, well, I've never been. Yes, it is a very deliberate choice. I'll tell you why I use that, because that's my wife playing. <laughs> so it's a close connection. My wife is a classical violinist and that's her playing Mendelssohn piano concerto. That is fabulous. That is not the answer I expected. If only <laughs> all of us had a, a member of the orchestra in the family. Well, I, I know, yes. I was curious about priming. So what I was curious as I was listening to your podcast, what tone is Daniel trying to set in having a classical piece of music? Now, from what you've shared with me, it doesn't sound like you really plotted out deliberately or consciously the behavioral science that you would use in your well, podcast. I could do a classic bit of BS and do a neat post-rationalization of it and say that, of course, what I am doing is uh, just creating a certain sort of uh, tone and tempo. But I mean, what I'm actually trying to do, I mean, I think actually... After the event, the music works quite well. I rather like it. I think it kind of leads in into the interview nicely. What I'm trying to do, actually, is to be a balance of educational, accessible and entertaining, which I don't mean to sound bland, but where I'm trying to be a little different in these conversations is to ensure that while the conversations should be grounded in rigorous research, that it's always pointing towards the real world and moving away from theory. If I think of the interviews that I think are less good quality, actually, it's when they stick too much to the theory. And I think actually I was going to ask you about this issue of replication, which you were sort of nudging towards talking about Cialdini and others. And then you were wondering whether some of these guys aren't actually applying BS principles in their own work. I'm actually reading some Cialdini and Steve Martin at the moment. It's one of their books around what they call the big smalls, if that's familiar to you. And of course, the example of the towels and the hotels is prominent amongst many other well-known experiments. And of course, 
course, what those books don't explore is replication and context and timing. And so, of course, it's difficult to then, if you're a practitioner and you're looking to apply that in your own world, where do you start? How do you take the example forward? Most of the literature doesn't actually address that. There's obviously an enormous amount of survivorship bias. Yes. And I can't speak at length about the replication crisis, and I tend not to get too worried about it and whether that's a good or a bad thing, because I'm much more focused as, as you are on how do businesses pragmatically take the essence of what behavioral economics and behavioral science more generally is telling us and have us rethink and do things differently in our workplaces. Can we take something straight from a behavioral study and apply it and think that that's the magic bullet? Of course we can't. And so I try not to get distracted too much because I'm not close enough to the research methodologies and the politics around that. And I'm less interested in it because I think businesses need so much support in the fundamentals of really, which is what I help with my clients with, starting from the position that the assumptions we're making about how people make decisions, i.e. that they are rational decision makers and facts always win the case and they sweat the details and what have you, those assumptions are flawed. We can't just ask our customers what they want because they'll tell us something, but it won't necessarily be what they'll act on. And we can't necessarily assume that just being better or telling them information, sharing information is going to move the dial. So with those two flawed assumptions in mind, we can't ask them and we can't tell them, what on earth do we do? And so that then for me is where my behavioral model comes in. And that's how I help my clients triage, try and work through any sort of business challenge and work it through from the perspective of, I'm not necessarily trying to move people towards something. I'm actually trying to move them away from something else because that's the status quo. So often businesses, we get very excited about what we're launching in market or this shiny new toy or this you know new product we want to attract people to forgetting that in order for people to move to that they have to move away from something else in the first place. Yeah, I think the point A of your model, which really will come to that, so we've just done a little dot, there will come to what your model looks like. But if we understand that point A is where our customers are now and you want to move them to point B, you know, one has to understand what's going on at point B and get under the skin of that. Despite that there may be some motivation to switch product or to behave in a different way, there are all sorts of psychological barriers which are holding people back in terms of familiarity with the status quo and kind of uncertainty about what change really means. So let's come to that shortly. But I wanted to take a step back because without rehashing a lot of the old ground, which you've talked about many times before about your background, it does fascinate me that, you know, you studied psychology and accountancy. So I wondered growing up and going through school, did you love both precision as well as creativity? (laughs) Oh dear. I did both concurrently. So I studied a double degree of accounting and psychology. How did I get to that point? I was most interested in psychology, but I didn't have really a net around me. My parents were teachers. I didn't really have a network or any understanding of people in business. And I thought, well, guess what? A business skill, an easy way to get into business because every business has an accountant is to study finance. And it also takes away the mystery or the fear of numbers. So did I ever like numbers? No, not necessarily. I spent five years in finance. That was sort of my starting and end point, but I was in commercial accountancy. So I worked for Coca-Cola. So that was very much about working with our sales team to understand really what the point of discounts was and the fact that discounts, you know, do have a cost. (laughs) rather than making the sale very easy. So I found myself educating them about the principles of finance. But then from there, I sort of moved more into not only people management, but human resources. And then I subsequently in a new role became a human resources publisher. So that led me into product management. And from there, I started to really incorporate more of the psychology. But I still remember the day and this I suppose, speaks volumes about the two fields of finance and psychology. I still remember the day I enrolled because I went to the finance faculty and everything was absolutely efficient, but they didn't even know my name. So I was a number to them. And then I trot over to the psychology faculty and oh my goodness, it was chaos, but they really were interested in me. Now, if this isn't a metaphor for 
system one and system two thinking, you know. So the psychology is all the sort of the conceptual and the associations and what have you and the finance is assuming that it's a very rational operation. So I often think back to that day as being a metaphor for the career that I would later have. Exactly. And could you have possibly anticipated then a life divided between the order of numbers and the chaos of the mind? Maybe that would be the neat post-rationalization, but maybe it was somewhere in the planning. I'd now work a lot with accountants because the interesting thing about numbers and finance more generally is that there's an assumption that everything, just because it's in an Excel spreadsheet, is objective and it's truth and it couldn't be further from it. And in fact, often we're not dealing with numbers, we're dealing with people's reactions to numbers. And that is the psychology of finance. That is why markets are scatty and really the psychology of markets and finance more generally. That is why in Australia we need compulsory superannuation because humans can't be trusted to save for our retirement. So we need to have the government step in and say, we're going to, you know, lever off 9% of your income and save it for you. This is all the psychology of it. What's your position on that? Because there have been multiple experiments in different countries, famous, I think it's Thaler and Bernatzi on the saving program in the US, which has been extremely successful by creating a default on people's income in which, you know, a proportion of that income is allocated to the pension or superannuation on a monthly basis. And that sort of default creates good behaviors. But there's also people who sort of believe that that is rather sort of an abusive behavioral science and that people should be given free choice. Do you have any view on that? Oh, this is where you stand on sort of the paternalistic argument and where is free will and it's my money and I should be able to do what I want with it. And it very much depends on the culture in which you were raised, I suppose. And so, for instance, if people don't have adequate funding in their retirement, that then puts an impost on society more generally. And so society is going to pay for it somehow down the track. So I'm very in favour of mandatory settings like we have in Australia, so superannuation, where it's your money, but you don't even touch it. So it doesn't feel like you're losing anything. And that was key to the American system as well, which is voluntary, of course, but it was only you opted in, but it didn't start to be taken from your pay until you got your next pay increase. And so you didn't ever feel that money was being taken away from you. And I was going to say, like any good nudge, but I think by Thaler's definition as well, you know, it should be non-obligatory. It's easily avoidable. It doesn't alter the economic incentive. So actually, in the same way that, you know, there might be rules which try and limit the amount of sugary, fizzy drinks that people consume, it doesn't stop you gaming the system if you so wish. It's just trying to reinforce good behavior. So I think that's totally fair enough. In terms of your influences, I know you've talked before about the influence of Dan Ariely's writing and research that kind of flicked the switch for you. But I've read some of his books as well. What was it particular about his writing? writing that motivated you and gave you that kind of motivation to change your career? It could have been the right time at the you know, right place. I was in the corporate sector at the time and I was involved in the product management of you know, a $400 million portfolio. And we would run a lot of customer research as you do. So a lot of focus groups, what would make you use the product more? And we'd um, monitor our satisfaction, our website satisfaction and all these sorts of things. So I was getting increasingly frustrated in this environment. We would spend a fortune on these sorts of analytics, and yet it wasn't giving us answers that would resolve any issues for us. I still remember conversations around our site satisfaction. So people reporting nine out of 10, eight out of 10 satisfaction with our site, which, you know, pat on the back, you know, that's fabulous. And yet our site usage numbers were plummeting. And so I'd speak to the analytics team. I'd say, help me understand what is the gap here? And they'd just say, well, it's not causal or, you know, one doesn't relate to the other. It's like, why are you giving me this information if I can't act on it in product management? And likewise, these focus groups, people would tell me, oh, if you put this in the product, you'd they would use it and, you know, you go down that path and they don't because it's not their natural behavior, it's rationalized or intended behavior. So yes, my brother happened to give me a book called Predictably Irrational. I read that. In terms of his writing, Dan is a humorous man and wonderful with his anecdotes and it was the first time behavioral science had really lifted off the page for me and I thought this is immediately applicable but I couldn't quite work out 
how. So from that point, I started to write my own blog, trying to convince myself of what is this behavioral economics and how can we apply it within our business? That was my first book I wrote whilst I was still in the corporate sector called 22 Minutes to a Better Business. And really it was just, I think, 18 business issues, a little recipe, how you would use behavioral science, which was me convincing myself that it had merit. From there, I did end up leaving the corporate sector because I could see, much like you've expressed, there's a gap between the science in the tertiary sector and the university sectors and how people can actually apply it in their business. So a subsequent book of mine is called Behavioral Economics for Business because I was still reading, you know, Ariely and Thaler and all of these other books, but none of them were about, but what do I do to my invoice differently? How do I write an invoice that uses these behavioral techniques, for instance? Or how do I have a conversation with a customer that uses these techniques? And so that's the path that I followed. I still actually think that there's a book to be written or content to be created, which really takes practitioners or individual teams or businesses through those sorts of experiments on a step-by-step basis. I mean, the models are there, the examples are there, but little that I read. I mean, Dilip Soman and Nina Mazar, who I interviewed recently, have just recently published Behavioral Science in the Wild, which is a compilation of essays on this subject of translation. But I still think there's another step to go, which says, if I'm a practitioner, okay, what do you actually want me to do with that information? Walk me through it in very simple language. I actually, and this is certainly not a meant to be a um, promotion for me, but... The floor is yours. Oh, well, I have two different courses on my website, for instance. I have Influencing Action, which is for those people that really want to understand conceptually, how am I going to use behavioral science to problem solve? But I also identified that, you know what, a lot of busy business people don't want that. They just want to cut to the chase. And so my other course or program is called Just Do This. And Just Do This is really... I've taken the behavioral science and then transitioned it into this is how you design your invoice so that it converts more effectively. This is how you design your website using behavioral science. That's fantastic. So you make this switch from what I imagine is a relatively stable corporate career to setting up your own consultancy. Are you a natural risk taker? Not at all. Hey, I studied accounting. What do you want from me, Daniel? (laughs) No, and that was the strange thing. You know, you can sort of join the dots in hindsight, can't you? But I did happen to be in a health retreat reflecting on my career and I'd read Danny Ariely's book and a few things. And I also at the time read Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek. Not that I ever aspired to only four hours, but he had a very helpful exercise in there, which was really about what's the worst thing that can happen and then how are you going to mitigate that? So what do you do if that happens? And suddenly what others may perceive as a risk of leaving the corporate sector to move into your own business doesn't actually seem like a risk anymore because you sort of start to strip it away. So that, that was my experience at least. And what I'm curious about, there's some self-interest in this question, but maybe this is getting into the sort of the, in my opinion, interesting weeds of the process, but how did you build your credibility from a standing start? I mean, of course, you had the psychology background, so that gave you some lift off, I guess. Wow. It's 11 years ago now. So I had no idea about how to charge for myself. And so for the first couple of years, I was charging an obscenely low amount of money because I was basing it on an hourly rate from my salary, if that makes sense. And so I did a course, it was a thought leaders course in I think my first or second year, because that, although a lot of it was a little bit, not necessarily my cup of tea, it was important for me to recalibrate my thinking, having had by that stage 15 years in a secure corporate work. And so you have to really challenge yourself. Now, in terms of credibility, I was writing for Ant Hill and then I started writing for Smart Company. So I've been writing for Smart Company for 10 or 11 years and that really helped. That's very much positioned to a small and medium business market. And yeah, it's really then about, um, goodness, I did write more books and chipping away from a credibility perspective. Perseverance. Perseverance, yes. Sticking sticking at it. Sticking at it, but also I think bringing something new to the table. And that has been the biggest change, I think. My fear for a lot of years has been derivative. 
and you know taking these books or taking the research and then just being a mouthpiece for it and i did start there and i still see that a lot in the marketplace people do sort of fancy diagrams of 50 biases in heuristics and it becomes a laundry list and they think that's behavioral science well no because that's not really helpful for people yes it gives you sort of a lexicon of 50 biases to talk about but it's really not bringing it into what is the challenge that people are trying to resolve so that has come over time. I started there and then I've really developed my intellectual property around it and changed it. And we're going to come, we are going to come to that, I promise. But I wonder, (laughs) as I know, I'm just delaying, delaying, but I'm curious because 11 years on now, are there observations that, you know, you've seen how the, in terms of change, in terms of how the world understands, accepts and embraces behavioral science? I feel like I was fairly early on, I certainly was one of the first in Australia, I believe, to set up a consultancy specialising in it. Again, not being a risk taker, that's a surprise to me and probably all of my family. But I have really noticed a significant popularisation and it's much more accessible. So people are talking about behavioural science. Early days, people didn't understand what gap behavioural science was meeting. And I got that feedback when I was pitching for work. They're like, no, we know our customer insights. We've got customer insights covered. And I wasn't in the early days able to articulate, no, 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 you haven't. This is completely different. Or this is filling a gap that you don't even know that you've got. And so now I have techniques to talk people through that. So the main changes I've seen it's become more popular. People are talking about it, whether that's lip service. I think it's still a lot of lip service. And in fact, I think now there's more of a backswing. So behavioral economics is to me falling out of favor and people are more looking to a broader behavioral science field. Let's then come on to your approach and the prompt where you said, you know, one of your key sort of starting motivations was to avoid being derivative. So let's bear that in mind as you talk about how you go about things, what your BS philosophy is. And let me put it this way, because you said in your Nudge Stock 2020 talk, which by the way, I highly recommend, it's about eight, nine minutes long, and it's entertaining and informative in equal measure, that behavioral economics is like a deconstructed sticky date pudding. So that seems a nice starting point for you to explain what the hell you do. (laughs) A deconstructed sticky date or sticky toffee, I believe. Sticky toffee. In the UK. Yeah. So I was out to dinner with some girlfriends and it was when deconstructed desserts were very popular. Thankfully, they seem to have moved away. But this sticky date pudding came and it was revolting because, you know, you had a bit of dry cake in one corner and a smatter of caramel in the other. How does this relate to behavioral economics? Well, behavioral economics to me was like a deconstructed sticky date pudding. There were ingredients everywhere but nothing was codifying it. So (laughs) thank you for that introduction. Yes, the nudge talk covers this ground off. So my model is very much based on, firstly, we have to clarify a behavioral objective. Now, that is common to my model and others. In other words, what are we trying to get people to do? Often, though, we skip to what we want them to do without understanding what they're currently doing. So that's the A to B that we were talking about earlier. So A is what people are currently doing. B is what we want them to do. And I draw a triangle from this point. So instead of going from A straight to B, we have to work through three behavioral barriers. And this is my codification of behavioral economics. Rightly or wrongly, this is what I've been using now for almost a decade and it has a lot of traction and a lot of scale and application. So the first barrier, the first problem we have to resolve is that people are lazy thinkers. In other words, system one, they don't want to think a lot. We rely on habits and associations and fast thinking. So we don't want to think too much. And so the first problem businesses have to resolve is engagement. You know, how do I get people interested enough? So how do you get people interested enough, for instance, in the podcast? Is it through classical music? The second barrier, now that we have them engaged, sometimes we can go overboard and offer them too many choices and they get confused. So this is very much the paradox of choice, choice overload in our spirit of generosity, trying to provide people all the information and all the options, we can actually get further away from a decision because we've given them too many. And the third and final barrier, which is what people often don't tell you, is stopping them from moving from A to B, but it's going to be there, is fear. So they are scared. So lazy, scared and overwhelmed. 
or lazy, scared and confused. These are the three barriers that we need to resolve. Fear being, how does this make me look? If this all goes wrong, if I've bought the wrong product or, you know, made the wrong decision, how is my family going to think of me? How's my boss going to look at me? I've lost money, etc. So a lot of fear, economic, waste of time, waste of resources, status, all those things in the fear bucket. So the beauty of this clarifying model is that it helps anyone in any business dealing with any challenge really clarify, is this a problem of laziness? Is it a problem of overwhelm? Is it a problem of fear? Is it a problem of all three of them? And how do we then go about resolving it? And with that in mind, what are the kinds of problems that you love solving? I love solving (laughs) dramatic pause. Do you know, I love solving small problems. And by that, I mean, my personal perspective on business is that business is about one percenters. It's about micro moments, much like the UK cycling team famously made one percent improvements to you know, what pillows the cyclists used at night and had amazing success in the 2008 Olympics. I think businesses are won and lost on these tiny little micro moments. What do I mean? It's things like how you write a letter, what subject line you have in an email, whether you phrase a request as sign up to our newsletter for 10% off or whether you write it as get 10% off by signing up to our newsletter because the sequence of what you share is going to make a difference. So those are the problems I like to solve. I'm working on a project at the moment for a large client and I'm reviewing over 100 of their letters, which sounds so dull, but it's fascinating because it really is about correspondence can be life and death for people. It can be very, very significant and it can have significant impacts for an organization because you write the wrong letter and you're going to get an inbound customer complaints line that's running hot. So problems that I like to solve, the minutiae of business and frustration that people have. Yeah, the bane of our daily lives. I'm not going to end up in any calm, you know, advertising celebration, that's for sure. It's lower grade than that. Okay. Now, because one area that you do write and speak about a lot is presentation and communication, which is really what in part what you're touching. And of course, that's critical in a world where we receive thousands of communications every day. We receive multiple presentations and pitches every week, whether that's endless PowerPoint slides or even LinkedIn requests, which is a whole sort of study, I think, in of itself, some of the curious things that people write. And you wonder, well, surely you could have put a bit more thought into personalizing that message a little more beyond, I see you are doing interesting things, would you like to connect, which doesn't really get the juices flowing first thing in the morning when you open your emails. But also, I think what's interesting when we think about presenting communication is that we're now living in a world where reasonable and balanced discourse is disappearing and the accuracy of information is questionable. So I think more broadly, we just need better ways to cut through, land our messages and find alignment with our friends, colleagues and opponents. And, you know, one of the sort of playlists of videos that you've created, you've interviewed many amazing people who are experts in this field. And I wonder whether there are a handful of principles that you'd share to get us to think a bit differently, to challenge the status quo of how we present and, you know, what do the great presenters do differently? What do the best do, whether they're speaking or writing or communicating in any format? Yeah, so certainly through my Talking Talks interview series, I've come away very much with a commitment to feelings being more important than facts. In other words, it's less about what you tell them, it's how they feel about what you tell them. So that means certainly for me moving forward, it will be very much about because I had a tendency to want to um, fill up people's brains with lots of information and that I think stemmed probably honestly from insecurity from my perspective about having the space on the stage to let things really sit and let people chew them over and, and think about. So really concentrating on how people feel I think is going to be important. And I think the big lesson of uh, we should always keep top of mind, it's about the audience, not your ego. And so how is this going to land for them? And that's a recurring theme in a lot of the work that I do, which seems obvious to me, but it's not for the people coming to me, is you're writing 
a letter or an email or a LinkedIn request, it has to be from their perspective, not yours. So it's really about what's the value for them first and foremost. I gave the quick example of how you write, for instance, instead of saying sign up to our newsletter to get 10% off because you're asking them the effort before the benefit, we want to flip that and say what they get before what they have to give us. So in other words, get 10% off by signing up to our newsletter because we have to hero our audience, the recipient of this message. And businesses can do so much more if they just remember that, whether that's from the stage or whether that is in any sort of written communication. And I think part of that is about telling good stories and personalizing and making sure context is right as well. I think it goes back to where we started that, you know, if you just throw information at people, which is, of course, often our temptation as presenters and communicators, as you say, it comes from insecurity or a tendency which we're all guilty of, of just wanting to show off and download. But I think kind of succinct stories which really connect with people and thinking about putting the audience at the center, that's really critical. That's really what makes the message land most powerfully. Yeah, storytelling is certainly a very popular thing <laughs> at the moment. I must say I'm not a big storyteller. For instance, like Rory Sutherland, amazing storyteller. And some people are gifted as a mode of communication to do that. And you can be trained in storytelling. And I certainly do it to a degree. From my perspective, it comes back to if I'm using my model, for instance, in a presentation, I would say, Point A is they're not engaged in behavioral science. Point B is I want them to be engaged in behavioral science. And then I have to overcome in my presentation laziness. So how do I engage them? And that might be a funny hat or it might be a story or it might be them drawing on their hand. So how am I engaging them? How do I make sure I'm not confusing or overwhelming them? So this is about me pulling back and having clear takeaways. And with fear, fear is an interesting one. So I don't want them to feel exposed or vulnerable as an audience member, but I do want them sitting on the edge of their seat as in their fear is of staying where they are in the status quo. And that's where you have a counterfactual or you, you know, hit them with something that they are not expecting. So we're using tension in a positive way. So using fear to actually drive their engagement as well. So yeah, storytelling, I think is one avenue, but it doesn't have to be the only way we communicate. And I take it then that you're very self-conscious in all your communications about the BS principles that you're putting forward and that you're sort of constantly self-questioning and making sure that you're not, that you're not falling into the traps that you're encouraging people to avoid. Do you know that has been the hardest lesson? What I was going to say before, but I cut myself off, was early on in my career, I had I had done a presentation and people, uh, this potential client wanted me in and, and to do a proposal on working with them. And the feedback I got from this client, which was a kick in the guts, but it was absolute gold because it was early on in my consulting career. She said, you don't walk your talk. So I'd done this great presentation, for instance, on using anchoring as a technique in pricing. And yet my proposal, there was no anchoring in it. And so I hadn't used the behavioral science within it. And this is, we talked earlier about um, behavioral scientists using behavioral science. That was the early kick in the guts I needed so that, yes, now I'm very, very aware. And can I tell you, it is exhausting. <laughs> you said self-conscious. Yes, I am very self-conscious. And the fact that it has to be conscious and I've been doing this for 10 years and I still have to, if I'm writing an email, I have to be sure it's a little bit more natural than it used to be, but I still have to settle down and reread it from the lens of, am I using behavioral science effectively in this communication? That sounds bloody exhausting. <laughs> and I don't always get it right. But yeah. yes, I have to walk my talk. I'm very aware of that. And that, frankly, was my significant disappointment with a lot of the behavioral science presentations I was watching at recent nudge docs was, please, you're not doing your work and your self-justice if you're not overcoming our own laziness. 
as an audience. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think that's, for me at least, also I think one of the exciting areas for continued exploration in the field, which is about how we started by saying how we kind of fill that gap between the theory and the real life application and the continued kind of good quality communication of all this science. Now, beyond the theories, of course, just to reiterate what I'm trying to do in these conversations, what I'm all about is trying to explain why we do the things that we do, why we make often or sometimes flawed and emotional decisions, how we can make better, more fulfilling choices, often at an individual level, not only at a business level. And I know that while more of your work is business focused, you also have some individual focus as well. And I bet that there's nobody listening to this who doesn't face a personal challenge, which might not be fulfilling potential. We may have fallen into bad habits with diet and exercise. We may be failing to communicate effectively at work or at home. I mean, how do you work with individuals to overcome these sorts of obstacles, to make better choices? Are you still using your same model or is there a different approach? I do use my same model because I have to <laughs> I have to monitor my own behavior. So for instance, I'm using a standard standing desk. And so one of the things I need to do is make sure I default to the standing desk. In other words, have it up rather than if I get tired in the afternoons, I tend to put it down. In the morning, I want to make sure that, you know, it is up and raring to go. So how do I work with individuals? It's the same model. So lazy, scared and overwhelmed. I've also wrote the book, The How of Habits. And this was preceded James Clear and his work, because again, I noticed there was a lot of great theory about habits, but how on earth do I do it? because a lot of it is aspirational rather than me just trying to live my life as a fast thinking, lazy thinking kind of person. So same sort of model and with individuals, it's mainly coaching. And what it tends to be is sort of a hybrid of their business and their personal life. And in fact, whilst a lot of the engagements I have with clients are through a work prism and my course is structured this way, my online course, the ultimate conceit is we think we're doing this learning so that we can change the behavior of others. But the only way we can change the behavior of others is to change what we do. And that means we have to adjust how we engage with people, how we write emails, how we show up to work. I often call it 360 degree BE. In other words, we're just talking about, you know, meta and all of these, not meta in the Facebook sense, but just turning these principles around and saying, if I'm an ad agency and I'm using behavioral science to, in our creative, am I using behavioral science to win pitches? If I'm in sales and I'm using behavioral science to win customer-facing work, am I using behavioral science with the finance team to make sure that I'm getting budget that I need? As soon as you have these techniques in your pocket, whether it's my model or, or someone else's, you can apply it in every element of business. So your personal life as well, the business, you know, it's with your colleagues, with your stakeholders, with investors, with suppliers, and of course, with customers. Do you think, by the way, that it's important in building a BS career, you've got to have a model named after you for credibility purposes, you've got, or if you're not going to have a model, you've got to have an effect or a heuristic, otherwise you're a nobody, or do you think you can succeed without it? Well, it's been interesting, actually, because I'm generous in talking about my model from one perspective. So it pops up in all sorts of different places. Sometimes people copy me in on LinkedIn thinking they're doing me a favor and they are, but I sort of have bastardized my model and that sort of thing. Yeah, I've been reflecting on what you call a model because I'm writing another book which has more of my models in it and I can't have the Williams blah, blah, blah in front of every model. So I'll take advice um, from someone like your good self, Daniel, on what I should be uh, calling these things. Yeah, I sometimes think that as a practitioner, and I know you've done some content on this, but it can, of course, be overwhelming, even for myself, because there are so many models out there. And there's a sort of a sense, you know, where do you start? I mean, without flattering you too much, I do one thing that I really like about your model is its extreme simplicity. And of course, when you dig into it, the conversation can become more complex, but it is easy to explain and it's easy to dive into. I had that horror moment and I have written about this where I had met with a client and sort of it was in a cafe and I'd done the model on a bit of a napkin and he thought it was fabulous and he took it back to his workplace. I called him later, you know, a couple of weeks later and said, because I was looking to have an engagement with him, put forward a proposal and he said, love your model, took the team through it. It's fabulous. I thought, no, 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 no. Just because I've drawn it on a napkin doesn't mean that's all there is to it. So that really gave me pause. And I've called, there's another model that I use called the simplicity paradox. 
it's an interesting thing that people don't value something if it's too simple. So my model, people will think it's just a triangle and they won't necessarily value it as in they don't think it's worth engaging me, etc. But then if you have a complex model, people don't use it. And so when anyone is developing a model, it needs to be simple enough for people to get. And I do believe that you should be able to draw it on a napkin and people should immediately understand it. But there should be then a cycle of there's much more complexity here. It'd be like um, thinking you've, you know how to drive a car when you've read the learner's manual, for instance, and you think, oh, that's all there is to it. I'm right to go out on the road. And that's where people can get in trouble. Right. You only really learn once you get on the road after you've passed your test. I mean, maybe there's something of, you know, the IKEA effect, if you're familiar with that, there, which is to say that people like to expend some effort in carrying out a particular task, which is to say that the act of having to take home the component parts of your furniture and then put it together yourself makes it a more satisfying purchase and you then get more pleasure out of it for having to actually do something rather than it just being given to you on a plate. Yes, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because people hate it before they love it with IKEA. But there is some sort of self-satisfaction. Again, in my course, what I get people to do is actually train me in the model so they learn it and then they have to film themselves teaching it, for instance. And it's amazing, the interpretations, because I think people do like to put their own personal stamp on it. Great feedback for you, because I imagine actually the downside of the sort of maybe counterintuitive of simplicity is that it's extremely tempting to sort of present these things at executive meetings and you sort of get a big tick for saying, well, we've got this sort of model and framework and it's very straightforward, but then actually without thinking necessarily how you apply them, that's where it gets trickier. It is. And I think you, as I do, when we're out there applying our trade and The only way I'm going to be able to pay my mortgage is if people see value in my ideas and want to pay me for them, which is the sad story because I like as in, you know, this educational bent in me just wants to share all of the good stuff. But actually, I do need to have a return on this. And I think, and I've done it myself in the past, you see a great model and you think, oh, well, it's a victimless crime to use this model. (laughs) <laughs> and in yeah. fact, it, in fact, it's good for the person who created the model because how flattering for them that, that we're using it. So I think my endeavor with this sticky date pudding model, this Williams behavior change model is very much, I want a simple way for people to wrap their arms around behavioral science and say, I can tie it into a real life application, whether it's in my personal life or whether it's in my business life. And I think a lot of the other behavioral models like East and Mindspace, which are very good, but they can be more like a laundry list than they actually help you problem solve. And I like the models that help people problem solve. Yeah, I think you should seriously consider renaming it to the sticky date pudding uh, model. I think that would give real standout, but maybe that's a different discussion. Maybe stick with your own name on it for now. Dates can be misinterpreted. <laughs> Good point. Yes, but you could end up in all sorts of curious conversations on that basis. Exactly. I mean, there's a natural sort of concluding question here, which is that if behavioral science is so good, why aren't more people using it? That's exactly right. And I've asked that question of myself and also I think I've posted in materials that I've written also. So why is it? Well, it's status quo. And as we've talked about this evening, the fact that I'm still having to pour over an email and think about am I using behavioural science tells you how effortful learning these new techniques or applying these new techniques can be. Now, it is worth it, absolutely, but... I think, uh, you know, the best possible world, we would be educating kids on psychology and how people make decisions early on rather than assuming, and I think this is the core of my work, we assume because we are human, we know how humans make decisions. And yet there are so many flaws in that, which is why we don't necessarily move or eat the way that we want to. And we procrastinate over projects that we should be prioritizing. All of these sorts of things. Well, it's because we're lazy, scared and confused. If only we could know that earlier on and sort of structure our lives on the basis of that knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of thoughtful businesses are doing BS inadvertently anyway. Maybe the challenge there is just to systematize it a little. You can probably, one can uncover lots of good examples of things that people are doing without quite labeling it. 
I was going to make a final observation before we get into the quick fire. Since you asked me about my music earlier on, one thing that occurred to me just as we were talking is that I wonder whether you'd ever thought whether your background and this room or your study that you're in feels to me so much part of your brand. I mean, it just so happens I sit in the same study to do all my things. I don't really feel that I'm, there's any kind of branding value on my background, but you produce far more content than I do. And of course, I'm therefore very familiar with looking at, well, I can't all your wall and your certificates and your books and the background. Has that ever occurred to you? what the setup that you're creating behind you. Of course it has, Daniel. Of course. I'm trying <laughs> to walk my talk. It's certainly, and that's um, very much what people should all be doing. It's about what messages you are sending. So, yes, whether it's music or lighting or what have you, you work with what you can have. I'm still terrified or horrified, I should say, by people who are filming up their nostrils. I mean, this right. is it's not good enough. You need to put some effort in to put your best foot forward and all of those sorts of cliches. But, yes, deliberate use of books and images and qualifications, all that sort of stuff. You were asking about credibility earlier. Well, that's, you know, part of that game. <laughs> yeah. On which note shall we do some quick fire? Let's go. Let's go right. for it. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, ever. Look, um, a more recent example, which was a bit of a sad example, but I had to put my old dog down during lockdown here in Melbourne a couple of, uh, maybe 18 months ago. It was very isolating because we weren't really allowed out of our homes and just my neighbours really surrounded me with a lot of love and, yeah, that was very kind. Oh, God, what a thought. We have a two-and-a-half-year-old dog now. We often sort of think, oh, God, how awful will it be? But uh, Oh, she's you... almost 17. So had a good innings. Yeah. Oh. What's your most powerful memory? My most powerful memory, Daniel, was running for my life from an elephant. Oh, tell us more. <laughs> I was in um, Botswana and we're on a walking safari. And funnily enough, even though you're amongst all sorts of things that can eat you, after a while, it just feels like you're walking in the park. So you become quite blasé around things. And you wouldn't think that we would miss an elephant, but we, you know, moved into its territory. But I didn't know it at the time. All I knew was that the two girls ahead of me looked at each other with such fear in their eyes. I knew something was serious. And so we all started in single file running for our lives. I fell over. And all I could think of was, you know, in movies, how the person who falls over is the one that gets trampled. That was me. So if ever I wondered, how is my body going to stand up to a crisis? <laughs> it was not good. So long story short, I'm here. We weren't trampled by the elephant and it was a fun experience. <laughs> fun experience after an endlessly good cocktail party story to tell. Brilliant. <laughs> That's right. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. That could have been that answer. <laughs> it could have been. Um, here's a boring one. I use a left-handed mouse, even though I'm right-handed. There's a behavioral habit that I endeavored to change and I was successful in doing. Okay. So I encourage people to do that. It's good. Okay, I shall try that out. Which book do you gift most regularly? Uh, recently, it's been Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett because I think that is a really excellent and accessible exploration and she's a brilliant, brilliant woman. Okay. What's your desert island music? Oh, it's something like classical guitar. I wouldn't say by a particular person, but classical guitar. Okay. And lastly, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? I spend my time hiking. Okay. You're in a good part of the world to do that, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. Well, the funny part around the world, you know, there's great places to hike. But yes, um, I'm on the beautiful Mornington Peninsula in Victoria and we've got lots of green spaces, which is lovely. Fantastic. Well, look, with that, Brie, let me thank you enormously for joining me, Shen, sharing so much insight from all your experiences. I really hope that everyone who listens to this can take away at least one idea to bring to their own lives, whether that's family life, work or social, and use it to bring them greater satisfaction, fulfillment and happiness, which I think in the end is what all about doing. So thank you so much, Brie. Thank you, Daniel. Well, everyone, with that, and after a year of fairly non-stop BS, I'm taking a pause over August, as I said, and we shall return all guns blazing with more great stories and adventures from the curious world of behavioral science in September. 
And remember, before long, we'll be launching the new BS with the Practitioners series, featuring the likes of Alexandra Chesterfield at NatWest Bank, Clemence Quint at Magenta Consulting, Sarita Bethea at Coca-Cola, and Preeti Kotamathi at Grab in Singapore. In the meantime, I wish you all a great August, and as I sign off for the month, let me ask of you one more thing. If you like a load of BS, please share it with friends and on social media. Your support is what makes us tick. Thank you so much.